Hey, First Gen family, this is your host, Rich Two. This is the last episode of the special First Gen Stay Home Edition series. We've done 12 of these, which is basically a full season for us under normal circumstances, but we will be back very soon, so don't you worry. I just want to start off by saying thanks for listening. It's been great to catch up with friends old and new and see how we're all living the pandemic. Also, if you found us through the Webbies, which we were an honoree this year in the live recording category from the MTV edition episode, welcome. It's good to have you. And today we have a great double-sized episode for all of you. As we're recording this, it's Asian and Pacific Islander American Heritage Month, hashtag AAPI for short, hence our two special guests. First up is an old friend of the show, Gavin Allowen, one of my partners in crime at MTV. We talk about how he's preparing for fatherhood a second time and also what guilty pleasure content we're both consuming right now. And then it's an epic season finale. We have poetry legend Bo Sia, who's been on Deaf Poetry, MTV Spoken Word Unplugged, and the documentary Slam Nation. He has a new book out called Well Played. It's dope. I got a peek at it. And he performs two poems at the end of our conversation. I have chills just thinking about it. It is such a treat. Hopefully you all enjoy it. Before we get to our guests, though, I just want to encourage all of you to help support your frontline healthcare providers and donate to First Responders First, a fund dedicated to frontline healthcare workers serving during the coronavirus pandemic. And you can do that at help.org firstrespondersfirst.co. And when you're done with that, if you could subscribe and leave us a review, that'd be greatly appreciated. We will see you again very, very soon this year. And now on to our guests. Gavin Allowen, welcome back. Thank you. What's up, man? Haven't seen you IRL in a while. (laughs) Like physically in the same room. For real. What has it been? Like two, it's like two months? Two months. Two months. It is wild times. I, <laughs> it's crazy, man. Yeah. I have no idea what what time, day, anything is. We're, we're just kind I know. of in the middle of I always it. Jo- it's like the same joke. It's like, oh, it's March 64th right now. You know <laughs> Seriously. What I mean? It went to shit like a day or two after my birthday. Like yes. my birthday was on March 12th. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you got to work from home. You got to do this. You got to change your, you know, everything has changed. So it just feels like we're still in that same March cycle. I don't know. Yeah. To me, it's just weird. Outside of like the weather changing. I think that's the only change. Like, oh, it feels hotter now, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, know. And, we, and we have that crazy cold situation that's going to happen this weekend. It yeah. Like 80 degrees in New York last weekend. This weekend, we have like an Arctic burst. <laughs> coming in pretty sure it doesn't help with the people's immune systems (laughs) seriously it just fucks everything up seriously all right so for the listener gavin uh, you are the social art director for mtv digital also Mm -hmm. a former guest on first gen and right now we're in the middle of first gen stay home edition and kind of just want to give our listeners a, a a a check on how you're doing, what your life is like. I know you and I talk pretty regularly through Zoom for, you know, mm-hmm. work reasons. Yep. But yeah, like you have some new developments happening also. You're about to be a dad again. Yep. Talk us two. through that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the I guess, you know, it's an exciting time just in general, you know, but during, under the circumstances, you know what I mean? And I know a lot of other people are having kids during this crazy time. So it's have that scare factor because it's like even... I've told you this in other meetings, like, man, just even going in the groceries, I'm like stressed because I was like, oh man, I got to mask up. And if uh, I got to take my other child with me and Kanako, and it's like, uh, 
you know, you have that the the xenophobic factor of people just being like, "Oh, are you are you Chinese?" Like, like it matters or anything. And then the fact that there's a pandemic, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's like I just want to get groceries. You know what I mean? And even <laughs> like before the lockdown, you know, we would go to the grocery store, obviously, but not in this regular interval. It feels like we're just going through food and and whatnot. So, I mean, I'm not trying to over exaggerate. It's chill for the most part, but those are there are certain factors that during this time have, have kind of weighed on me a little bit. Um, for sure. And yeah, you get stressful. So I'm, I'm sure you feel similar effects um, with you and Allie and uh, things like that. It's just, it's just a matter of the times we're in 2020 is just off to a crappy start. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, Seriously. We, uh, thought, we thought 2020 was going to be such a dope year. <laughs> I know. We're like, oh, you know, Trump's going to be voted out. We're going to, you know, it's going to, it's a new year. It's a new, and then it's like this pandemic starts, you know yeah. what I mean? And then uh, Mother Nature is like, oh, by the way, not at all. So yeah. I know in our last episode, yeah, we talked about you being a father and how your life changed. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give our listeners a little bit of like a comparison between what it was like the first time and what it's like this time in the pandemic? Yeah, how yeah, how we were adjusting for the, for the first time. It's just kind of like you're like, oh man, am I am I prepped? Do I you know you're doing everything by the numbers as much as you can and like. Uh, we didn't read any books at FYI. And also, I mean, I was just a lot of Google, but you know, the, the feeling of like, we have to be prepared kind of thing until it happens. And even the actual, like, um, you know, when, when uh, it was, the baby was coming, it was just more of like, wait, maybe we should go check, you know, something's happening. And then the doctor was like, oh yeah, uh, she's having a baby now. So it wasn't even like the movies where you're like, oh, I'm in an Uber and I'm stuck in traffic and she's going in the lake. You know what I mean? So that was the contrast to now versus like, I'm, not necessarily worried per se. I mean, obviously we're doing the regular checkups, but it never really feels real until you're like in it. Right. You know what I mean? Like you're like, Oh shit, this baby's coming kind of thing. Again, I can't speak for my partner and being a woman or anything, but that's from a male's perspective, from a father's perspective, I can only, you know, I I need to make sure uh, the health insurance is there and provide feeling like I'm a provider in that traditional sense, you know, Um, going to work, making sure my office is set up here so I can accomplish that. Things like that um, is what I'm trying to bring. But also it's silver lining is that being home more, I'm able to see my daughter more and I feel bonded over that, you know, and my partner as well. So that, you know, I think is a good takeaway. If anything, I'm able to spend more time. Um, but it is a little bit scarier now that there's this pandemic and who knows, you know, the due dates in October. Um, if it's a girl, it's good. we're going to name her May. And if it's uh, a boy, Ben or Benjamin after my grandpa. Oh, love that. So we got, we got the names locked. Um, but yeah, in October, who knows where we'll be at. You know what I mean? So um, it always weighs on you kind of thing. I'm just the, the actual the birthing and, and like things and the preparedness just cause we've yeah. done it before or maybe, you know, I can't speak. I'm not the one delivering it kind of thing, but yeah. I'm more worried about like the whole COVID situation and making sure that's, and, and you know, with the, the work changes and making sure your benefits and everything, you know, things like that, that's important. Cause yeah, it's expensive. I don't yeah. know if you know, but <laughs> that healthcare shit's expensive, you know, but yeah. shout out to all the healthcare workers that are. Yeah. Shout out to all the frontline right workers for sure. Yeah, and it's it's like without them, I don't know where we'd be, you know. What are you thinking? Well, 
we work at MTV, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're making this content, uh, yeah. and also all about this, that content, all about the, about that content life, one thousand yeah, percent. And our other podcast, Beige to Brown, is on uh, possibly <laughs> permanent hiatus. I have no <laughs> idea how we want to run that one. But we'll shout just, out to uh, simulcast. We'll just put this one on the channel and just double yeah, exactly, up. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So. so shout out to Antia, yes. love Antia, Tia the Strange on Instagram yep. and also uh, Twitter. But what what kind of content are you consuming? And also, what are you, do you have any predictions of mm. what content is going to be like after we get out of this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Netflix. And obviously, we work at MTV. So shout out to Paramount, Viacom, CBS. But they hooked us up. <laughs> shout out just, to Sonic the Hedgehog. Yo, for reals. Uh, things like that, early access or access to, to things like that. Same shout thing out with, to Picard. Yo, for reals. You know, Homeland. You know what I mean? Like, Homeland, I've watched the first... Yeah seasons on hulu now we have showtime with because it's all packaged so yo you um, know what i started watching i started watching bob loves abishola on cbs CBS? oh yeah on all newish one it just the the poster looks like an old like british detective movie (laughs) or show it's not it's a newer show right it does have kind of like a BBC type of That's look what, to yeah, it. I don't know what it cover. Yeah, I, I don't know how to describe <laughs> it, but it it's something queue. specific. Yes. Is it a good but, series? Uh, me and Ali jumped into it, I think yesterday, oh. sort of binging the whole thing because obviously it's just a sitcom. It's like every episode yeah. is like 22 minutes or yeah. whatever. Um, and then you get the takeaway at the end. Yeah, um, it's about <laughs> a, a compression socks businessman named Bob um, who has uh, heart problems in the pilot episode and then falls mm-hmm. in love with his with his nurse Abishola and uh, Bob is American every, uh, Midwestern good guy Bob. good old <laughs> Bob I love Bob by the way yeah um, uh, also that that actor he was in uh, Mike and Molly for years oh, gotcha. a great comedic actor great comedian mm-hmm. and then Abishola is uh, Nigerian and it's about um, the beginnings of a court or the beginnings of a relationship you know like it, obviously it's a sitcom and it's yeah. cheesy but it is about the understanding of different cultures but it's by chuck Lorre, so he yeah, kinda, yeah. he's about to find that cla- formula of yeah, classic yeah. sitcom yeah yeah but clashing cultures um with like a bit of edge but it's also still a sitcom so it's not the most edgy thing mm. but you know but shout out to the content because laughs sitcom laughs yeah. i haven't Guys, watched a sitcom we, in we need a good laugh yeah if anything, yeah, we're just re binging shows that we have or already watched. You know what I mean? Just because yeah. uh, I know we talked about watching The Killing, which is kind of a detective, <laughs> yeah, uh, solve it mystery kind of thing, which is good. And then um, Castle, just like a you're watching Castle. Nathan, <laughs> we have all season because uh, you know Nathan Fillion's uh, one of my favorite actors, and I like his body of work. Uh, he's in Firefly. Yeah, shout out to know. Firefly. Yeah, shout out to Firefly, and he's in um, that zombie show with Drew Barrymore too. He's the disembodied head. Oh yeah, head. he was. He was. Yeah, he has. He makes little small cameos, and he's on this other new show. It's called The Rookie, where he's just like an old rookie cop. <laughs> he's just a funny act. I don't know. Um, and it's just quick and see. Like you don't have to. It's one of those. They're procedural, so you don't need to know oh, what yeah. happened on the last one. So totally. I think um, the binging happens just because we're. Not like I don't pay attention, but I think it's something that's as quick and consumable that's familiar. Yeah. I think it's a, a good go-to. Um, yeah, I've been watching then, a lot of Chicago PD. <laughs> have you ever <laughs> seen not that show? Confused with Chicago Fire? Is that where they have a Chicago Fire PD crossover? Is that that whole oh, yeah. cinematic? Yes, universe? well, exactly. It's in the Dick Wolf universe. Oh. So, and I also oh, shout out to Ali because Ali loves his content. So it's I'm always absorbing a by osmosis, mm-hmm. and then I'll <laughs> I'll get like emotionally involved with the 
when I least expect it. But uh, Chicago PD is in the same universe as Chicago Fire, and they also mm. have overlapping characters. And then occasionally, Mariska Hargitay from SVU will go to oh. Chicago and be like, you Chicago Damn. cops are messing it up for us in New York or Damn. whatever. That's uh, that but, whole Dick, U- Dick Wolf universe then. Yeah, exactly. Damn. I know, but Chicago PD, like I'm, I was low key hating on it in the beginning, but now <laughs> I've actually come around to it. So okay. if Ali's it listening on the other side of this door, yeah, I'm coming around like, to it. Like we're talking shit about Chicago PD right now? <laughs> no, I love it. Elias Codius, <laughs> RIP. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who these people are. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> oh man. But this is I a podcast also... crossover. Oh man, I know, right? You just kind of cross over to another podcast and just like the whole fucking thing um but it's just to say like i know i joked about this earlier but it's like man this feels like netflix and all these other providers were waiting for or something to happen and all of a sudden there's hella content out in the ecosphere now these days everyone's at home and binging shit you know what i mean because it's like you know they definitely didn't expect this to happen (laughs) they just had it in the tank it's crazy just you know good for numbers obviously under the circumstances it's kind of shitty but yeah um yeah, if anything, people are consuming content more at a rapid rate because, you know, you're supposed to be indoors. You know yeah. what I mean? So, <laughs> what are stay you, indoors. What are you most surprised in terms of your content consumption? What was the thing that you mm. are watching right now that you never thought you'd be watching? Sometimes, and again, this is because I have a daughter and we need to put on YouTube. So, I'll watch a lot of Peppa Pig. And these episodes are like two hours long, you know what I mean? But I'm like, oh, I remember this episode, but I'll still watch it. You know what I mean? I don't know if that's surprising or not, because as a parent, you're just, you know, making sure you have to monitor what your child's watching. Um, I guess that, and I don't know, nothing really. Uh, I've told you this before, but I guess this is a surprise, but on, on YouTube, the History Channel has released like a lot of clips of Forged and Fire, which is just a, it's like a bladesmithing show. But at the end, two bladesmiths have to recreate like an iconic weapon. So it's like, uh, you have to um, go make a katana. And then they test the shit out of it. Like they put it against like kill dummies and things like that. But it's just, it's a competition show. It's basically like chopped, but for like uh, forging. You know what I mean? But yes, the, yeah. the competition and like the heat is on, like shit like that. Those cliches of, and then when the judges uh, deliberate, it's all dramatic and stuff like that. So it hits on those same beats, but uh, it's just funny. You just see these like different iconic weapons of history. And I'm just like, why am I watching? All of a sudden, <laughs> I'm 50 episodes or 50 clips deep. You know what I mean? So, Did you grow up with a sword in your house? <laughs> no. Because did I, I didn't did grow up with this. I did not. Yeah. But a you good grew friend. Up with the two uh, sticks, the screamer. <laughs> oh, with the screamer sticks. No, my, I, I had like the cousin that would that would visit yeah, on same. occasion, but bring a pair of a screamer sticks. Yeah. Um. For the, also, for the listener, screamer sticks are uh, part of a Filipino martial, martial arts. arts. Yep. Yeah. They're literally just two sticks. Like. Yeah. Um. Like imagine Nightwing from DC Comics. That's like kind of what his weapon would be. Yeah. Um. They're yeah, like Billy clubs without the the extra handle, and uh, but yeah, my cousin Michael would come by with his screamer sticks. I thought it was so cool, uh, but I had a friend. Did you do his, uh, best Ernie Reyes Jr. impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shout out to uh, Surf Ninjas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ninja Turtles: Secret of the Ooze. Yeah, the second one, right? Yeah, and also a bit He's... part in Rush Hour Part Two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, he he had a part in uh, the Rundown. With the rock? Oh yeah, where he, him? he's fighting in the jungle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's fighting the rock, and he's like, oh yeah, he's super quick, and the but rock just has to land one hit because he's so much bigger. 
So good though. That's a great, uh, kind of underrated action movie. Totally. But also The Rock's first foray into like a um, big action star kind of thing. Yeah. So. That that sucks though that his career. But shout out to Ernie Reyes Jr. because I, I appreciate him. But it kind of sucks that like as his career progressed, he had less speaking roles because he's talked the most when he was young. Yeah. Had, they had a ton of speaking roles when he was young. But then he got that role, not even just him, but that role has slowly gotten reduced to the like the martial arts like savant foreigner kind of like foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but but anyway going back to the the sword story so my <laughs> boy <laughs> my boy mike last name will not be said but uh my boy mike used to be boy back in the day also uh-huh. filipino and he lived in new jersey i he grew up with a sword in his house also his family was into martial arts uh-huh. and then i remember i was in high school mm-hmm. and his his dad gets mad at him because he Mike was in military school and then Mike had to go back to military school for the weekend, but he just didn't mm. want to go. Then he got, I was in his living room Saturday afternoon. He gets into it with his dad Damn. and then his dad takes the, the, the wall sword Damn. unsheets the wall sword and starts like swinging it at Mike. I was like, Whoa. What? I was like, this is some real Asian family shit. Yo, for real. So, like your dad is uh, swinging a sword at you. <laughs> I'm like you won't be able to go anywhere. <laughs> like, let alone back to military school. And they like, actually thanks slapped- dad for leaning into the stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Asian dad with a sword. For real. Like that. Was it a dad for stabbing too? me. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> uh, but he actually cut his arm up. Uh, with the sword and I had to like drag Mike into the into ER the kitchen oh. just to separate the two and I was like whoa that was crazy <laughs> hopefully it's I'm pretty sure it was more of a dull blade too because yeah. you know those things are ornamental and I'm sure I don't know maybe he kept ornamental. it a lot of times yeah. just not oriental but ornamental <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> can't use the L word these days right yeah, we can. can we can say it we amazing, can say but, it yeah. yeah also it is a physical object so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, We're not using it to describe as a you no, know descri- not talking about a human yeah. being yeah yeah exactly podcast already off the rails <laughs> no, <for real. laughs> don't want to get canceled <laughs> I'm gonna keep this in because okay. <laughs> oh man forged and fire yeah forged and fire I know I keep bringing it up every podcast but I'm surprisingly <laughs> into it you know what I mean and I we talked about this too just more of how uh, live streaming music concerts are doing you know what I mean like. Right. Uh, outside lands did like inside lands or like we talked about that 88 rising um just concert even though it's pre-recorded obviously you know what i mean a lot of the stuff but the idea of like i think um i don't know if you have talked on this question before but the idea of media in this 2020 is very everything's isolated and quarantined and right. packaged in a way that's like of the time this this like you wouldn't expect this type of um quality of video even like last year right yeah, yeah. everything was about well, well polished ever produced everyone's yeah. going out making make and make content now theoretically people can still make content and it's probably being you know we talked about the consumption of people watching content i'm it's almost just as much people producing it because you have your tiktoks and your th- in your and your snapchats that theoretically you can compile not unlike this podcast you're just recording off zoom right yeah. Zoom, if anything, is the new Hollywood, right? <laughs> like when Zoom, Zoom is was, the new Zoom, Hollywood. If Zoom, Zoom is was, the new Hollywood, yeah. Was smart, and I don't know if they if they uh, break out their Zoom to a fucking social media video platform. You know what I mean? Because um, not unlike a TikTok, 
I don't know if it's a dumb idea or not. It might not be a good idea, but for them to then capitalize on the their name and just being like, hey, we're also taking what you're doing on a Zoom call. And I'm sure people, you know, I think uh, our coworker, Ariel, shout out to Ariel. Um, shout out to Ariel Weaver. Yeah. Talked about like, uh, what's that show on Netflix? Like, not The Circle, but like Love is Blind, but there's like a Zoom version or some shit like that. Love it's, is Quarantine. Yeah, Love is Quarantine. Yeah, it's on like Instagram. If, if Zoom would then theoretically make a platform or some kind of thing to capitalize on this even more so versus being just like, a, uh, I'm a business video conferencing app. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they but could Zoom, essentially be this 2020 Hollywood kind of but thing. But Zoom has to know, I mean, they obviously they know. They know what their app is currently being used for yeah. now. So Obviously I just, for the live streaming. But then right, the, right. the idea of it being like Jimmy Fallon uses it, uh, all the, you know, Trevor Noah, all those, all the, you know, those networks that, that theoretically can't be in studio are using it as a medium. Even like, they're even doing things like Conan O'Brien crashes a Zoom meeting, things like that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. What do you think um, about that stuff? I mean, obviously, yeah, they would. I think it's funny, obviously, because I think Conan O'Brien. It's, Bryan's it's funny. funny for sure, but, but that's like it a, does read as an ad to me. Yeah, not that I'm sure. against advertising. Not that I'm against branded content, but a part of me is like, oh, but I yes. think it's smart because that's funny. It's of the time. You know what I mean? And Very I true. think now is you know, hopefully this thing dies down. 2021, we get back to normal. It won't be the same. I think this is the time of year. Well, you know, yeah, knock on wood, but this is the only time of year we're going to kind of consume content and produce content in this manner uh, as the virus dies down. Right. You know what I mean? So, and if it doesn't, I don't know, do you think this has a long lasting impact of how content is created? Because people are forced to consume it regardless. There's like, I ain't got nothing else to do. So I'm going to watch this yeah. Zoom content, you know, but if people are out and about and be like, Oh, I have a choice now, you know what I mean? I can theoretically watch something of more higher quality. Again, that's like up to the user to define what quality is, but just yeah. in terms of a visual cinematic and, you know, right. aesthetic look, I guess. I, I think it's now a great equalizer yeah. where these, these tools, these, um, person-to-person chat tools have become media tools now where literally you have uh, people of the highest status using these everyday, um, you know, blue-collar social media tools. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think it's also given creators more empowerment to to create something that, at least on the surface level, looks at the same quality as theoretically a Jimmy Fallon or a yeah. Stephen Colbert. So it'll be interesting once we come out of this while social distancing is still in effect, um, exactly what levels of production Hollywood returns to. And then yeah. also what individual creators are now empowered to do after the fact. But I guess it's all up to the audience in terms of what they're willing to consume. And, you know, is it back to business as usual? I presume not. I mean, movies are still going to be movies. I mean, yeah. the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't going to go to Zoom. So there'll still be some hard barriers, right? Yeah. Unless they bring back Ultron and they have to fight him through Zoom. <laughs> and he's hacking your system. <laughs> Yo! Around the COVID situation. <laughs> that would be kind of tight. Ultron they bring and back Zoom. Jarvis, you know what I mean? Seriously. Oh, come on, throwing Disney fucking a bone here with the um, <laughs> Disney Plus content. 
right. Ultron versus Jarvis Zoom talk show or something. Exactly. Like a podcast here. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's, if we were to bring it back to Viacom CBS, <laughs> this is so corporate. I don't okay. love doing corporate shit on here, yeah. but, but this is too good. Okay. So if we were to take the zoom idea, but then take it into like the Terminator dark fate world, <laughs> Skynet. Oh, well, how would we try to re 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 reboot the Terminator franchise, uh, but in this new Zoom media landscape. Let's just let's try to work it out. It's like it would be like the COVID is the is the Skynet, right? Yeah. And then whoever is theoretically the left of the human resistance is just talking through Zoom with the cure. So then Skynet <laughs> has to then through COVID adapt the time travel aspect. They have to con- con- you know. Uh, digitize themselves in the virus computer sense. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. In, yeah, so, then it becomes in that like matrix, like oh, we're the last of Zion and the fucking <laughs> <laughs> it's are after us. Um, blending line. That's how I would imagine it. I don't know if that's good or not, but um, so, it's so, that idea of like we probably are communicating like this, have a cure. Yeah. So if COVID wants to really take out humanity, they would digitize themselves. Right. Into this podcast, this a third window would pop up and be like, you know, give me the cure, motherfuckers, or right. I'm gonna destroy all your systems. So. Right. Oh, so okay. So in your head, you're thinking that let's say T1000. Let's say T1000 yeah. is an AI. Yeah. But then he digitizes himself back into uh, back into a 2020 Zoom call. Yeah. <laughs> but then he's dressed as a cop. So he's he's just as <laughs> just as a cop. He's just as Jimmy Fallon. He's just as like, Jimmy oh, Fallon, yeah. and then he crashes your Zoom call. Yeah, he uh, he asks you if you've seen uh, Eddie Furlong, <laughs> <laughs> and then oh, and it's like where's Linda Hamilton at? Yeah, where's Linda Hamilton at? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it would be. You know what I mean? Just yeah, anything. But then it, you know, it depends <laughs> on what the future looks like. If they took out humanity already, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. And uh yeah. It's that's how ridiculous. <laughs> there you go. That's the Terminator Dark Fate twenty twenty reboot. <laughs> the re re reboot. Time. The re reboot. The, the, the re re the bad girl re reboot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so as we're winding down, that was that was a fast yeah. one. What what do you think for real though? Like what do you think are are your main takeaways mm. coming out of the the pandemic or coming out of the quarantine what have you learned what are you what are you using to stay positive and also uh what do you hope uh to to truly take out of this on a meaningful level yeah um i think if anything what has happened is and you know i've i've talked to this to my like high school teacher i did like a, a zoom conference Kind of thing with the students i think within times of like stress like this uh on a creative side i think there's more creativity in general you know what i mean just just based off of stressful time always brings a sense of camaraderie um and i think just from a creative perspective on that content creation tip i think there's the spread of um you know great creative in order to spread positivity in that regard. So I look to that, not unlike you being a content creator and illustrator, you know, content, like not unlike what you would produce or, um, you know, other artists on our team produce things like that. I think it's a, it's a great takeaway to then, cause you know, what else are you going to do? We got nothing else to do. Just, uh, it, it, there's a sense of focus if, if there is a good takeaway. And I think there's a great, um, coming to realization of your, 
needs and wants and what's important to you in life. You know what I mean? Especially in this time, because in the time of isolation, it's you, your family, and just, you know, de- determining what is important. Now it's like, mm, I remember when I would, you know, go to brunch and spend handle money. But now that within the social distancing, I've learned to cook for myself or something like that. You know what I'm saying? I think, I think that's a great takeaway is there's, there's lots of self um, reflection in that regard uh, that has taken place um, with that. Uh, and also if anything, it's not, not to sound cheesy, but maybe it brings people closer together because you know, they're, they're so isolated and spread apart. They, ha- they have to do mediums like a zoom or a Snapchat to, to kind of stay in contact anyways. And with that, you have access to people. You're probably like, Oh, uh, it, this is just my best friend who's down the block, but I can also reach my, you know, parents that are in Las Vegas or something like that, you know, things like that. So I, I feel that's, that's sort of the takeaway that I've, I've uh, sort of seen. No, that sounds really great. I think the closeness that we're feeling um, through all these, all these new tools, I think that's a new emotional, um, an emotional experience that like all yeah. of society is currently experiencing. But then I think that'll actually make when we can come together again, physically uh, as a society, I think that'll also make it even more rewarding. And, and I was just even chatting about it today with um, on Slack with some other um, of our friends Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taking for granted all the, all just like the little experiences of like yeah. literally just hanging out in St. Mark's, um, drinking a beer and then watching like a really dumb improv show or something, <laughs> or even going to, you know, an arcade and just playing street fighter, physically yeah. touching, uh, something else that isn't in my house, you know, yeah. I was taking all those things for granted. So hopefully we can, t- uh, be more mindful and, and, uh, really, really respect each other on a new level after this. Yeah, no, for sure. And be appreciative. And yeah, like you said, be mindful of things that you would take for granted normally. I think that that's a great takeaway because yeah, people don't think, consider that it's like that sense of enjoyment just because you had such easy access, but now that's like, mm, you know, it's not as easy these days anymore. I feel that's, you know, we have to, to appreciate that while they're here because, you know, not to get dark again, but a lot, I don't think anything's going to be the same. Businesses are not going to be what they were before because they're at varying degrees, but also is, is that something that will survive an impact like a pandemic, you know? So yeah, agree. Yeah. All right, brother, this has been super fun. I yeah, will yeah, see you. Time, man. I will see you on the next zoom call <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. right after this. Don't we have another meeting? And then, no, <laughs> that or you can just slack me. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, brother. Um, Gavin, where can our listeners find you? Uh, at yo panda on Instagram. And uh, you can check out my portfolio at uh, yopanda.work if you're interested. So, Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of great inspirational work there for all of our designers and creatives. Uh, Gavin is amazing. Thank you. I'm just kidding. I'm okay. How about that? Well, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. No, uh, no. Meme God over here. What are you talking about? <laughs> just the originator of uh, digital original content on the internet. Yeah, exactly. no, no, big deal. no big deal. No big deal. Well, I can um, say Michaela is impressed. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she'd be, she'd be impressed with that 7-Up deal that she got with that meme. So I didn't see a cent of it. Uh, so you're welcome <laughs> for that. And I'll, I'll give her that one. I'll give her that one. So. <laughs> All right, Gavin. Oh, man. All right. Peace. Peace. All right, Bo, see ya. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on First Gen Stay Home Edition. Uh, you are a poetry legend. Uh, I've actually been a fan of yours for a minute. I've, you know, definitely seen deaf poetry and also, you know, seeing Asian representation on screen, especially on mm-hmm. a stage like that, especially putting out, you know, uh, 
that level of creative energy that you put out in front of a crowd. This is a true honor. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Cool. So I would love to start off this uh, this recording the way we always do, where you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then just kick it off from there. Well, you know, as you can tell by my hairline, you know, I've had a few years in this life. Uh, you know, I was raised in Oklahoma in the pre-internet 80s. I feel like that distinction is important for Asian Americans, just because uh, imagine all those places in America where we were the first that they'd ever seen because there was no internet, there was no interaction. Uh, my parents are immigrants uh, from the Philippines. They're of Chinese descent, but my mother is considered what they call mix, right? Uh, Mestiza, right? And uh, and a part of her culture is uh, called Muslim down there in uh, the south of the Philippines because she's from Davao, right? Gotcha, yeah. Yeah, so she speaks Basai and all those dialects, right? And uh, so Part of that, that 10% crew down there. You know, they rough. Um, <laughs> I'll say this. They bad in Davao. But um, <laughs> my parents, you know, because of where they're born and raised, growing up in America, we were more culturally Filipino. Uh, we weren't so as accepted in sort of Chinese organizations as we were in Filipino ones, especially because fluency of language. You know, my parents don't speak Mandarin, but they speak many dialects, you know, uh, from the Philippines. So that's kind of where I'm from. And then, uh, you know, couldn't get out of Oklahoma soon enough. Went to New York as soon as I could. Told my mom, this is the only way you're going to get me to go to college. You let me go to New York. <laughs> Can you I know, ask? Your mom's scared, you know. Yeah, I know. Especially like conservative Asian parents. They get a little... They're, they're scared when their kids, uh, you know, go to the grocery store, let alone move from Oklahoma to New York. Off the street, be an artist, you know. For sure. So can I ask uh, how your parents got from the Philippines to New York? Well, it was wild, you know, because uh, as we know, um, you know, sometimes your immigrant family, they don't tell all the stories of how anything happened before we got to America. And you got to spend your life almost discovering some of these secrets, Right. So only in the last five years did I realize that, you know, some of their movement had to do with the cultural revolution and stuff, getting to Singapore first and then going to the Philippines through other relatives, right? Um, their parents. Um, and then coming to New York um, was, I think my mom just had a dream about it, a dream about, you know, coming to America, right? Uh, and obviously, even back then, there was a lottery. And, uh, you know, they just lucked out on the lottery, right? Because only so many of us are allowed here. What, what was your journey in, in poetry? How did that enter your life? Was that in Oklahoma? I know when you joined the, the New Yorican poets um, yeah. in, in New York, like you were very much in that scene, that Saul Williams scene. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that's, you know, that's yeah. an amazing thing. Like what was your early creative touch points? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, like, I, like I laid that context of how I grew up, you know, that reality had a place where I couldn't express a lot of things that was going on with me. People weren't hearing it or couldn't see it, didn't have a framework for it. I found, I got into visual arts at first, drawing comic books, but when I found language, the ability to articulate my experience, something clicked for me you know, um, got rejected by all these journals and then started going to open mics because I can't turn you down at an open mic, y'all. <laughs> so, so, you know, I would just roll up every Wednesday, you know, I'm going to do this. You have to hear me. And that freed me so much of my high school pain and all this other stuff. 
poetry was a way to get that out. Even if I wasn't aware of it, it was happening, you know? Right. And I got that taste and I used that to propel me to New York. Can you tell us a little bit about what that first onstage experience was like? Well, what were you feeling? And also what, what was your content like? Do you, do you remember any of that? Yeah, I was, uh, I remember that first show like it was yesterday. I could go right there, you know, back to the New Orleans cafe where I'm eating like Louisiana fettuccine Alfredo for some reason, which is a weird dish, but you know, only in Oklahoma. Um, and, uh, it's terrifying because you want to be heard so much, but you know you're not like anybody else in the room, no matter what you're going to say, because, because they're going to see you. It's not like I could walk up there in my motherfucking mask and stuff, and they could maybe think this mass singer is actually a white kid. You know, it's going to be me. So you are referring to the Asianness of it all. When yeah, you say, I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, people aren't inherently like, oh, I don't want to hear this. But at the same time, they don't got a point of reference. I'm this unknown and I'm glaringly different from the rest of the people in the venue, right? And my content was much like it is today. I mean, way more immature, but the same thing, which is, oh, you will hear me and I hate that you can't see this, but I will show it to you. It was loud. It was loud, loud enough that they couldn't judge me, you know? Wow. What was the crowd reaction? They actually liked it, which shocked me a lot. You know, um, you know, I was railed. The poem was railing about how I thought poetry was whack. That poetry was just whack as fuck. And uh, they ate it up. It was very shocking. I, I, you know, and that was the thing where I realized unconsciously, probably, if I stayed within a certain box of topic, they would embrace me. It was later as I had my 20s when I started feeling the friction as I went into other subject matter. So when you get to New York and you go to uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, can you tell us a little bit about what that culture shock was like for you? And also, how did you, how did you get into that scene, that mid-90s scene? I'm sure it was so fruitful here at this time yeah you know number one you know oklahoma to new york is crazy you go from like things close at 9 p.m to 24 hours a day you know no immigrant parents you know it's just crazy so first off on that culture shock i barely spend time at nyu my whole life was new york city just straight up i just did enough to get through school you know and then spent the rest of my time in the poetry world um as far as getting into the neo and stuff my whole thing about that was in 93, I believe, or 92, MTV released this thing called Spoken Word Unplugged. If they don't make this half hour special, I don't know that this thing exists in New York. The moment I see that, I start trying to get myself there. It takes a few years, but eventually I get to New York. And my whole dream is to read on that stage one day. Like I had no idea it would go further than that. I literally thought, I would spend 10 years to just get to even perform on that stage. So what was the, what stages were you performing on at the time? Like what was, what was your nights? What were your evenings looking like? I, I imagine that, you know, you were, there was a lot of Lower East Side and, and also by, yeah. um, uh, by what is it? Uh, by the Comedy Cellar area too? Like, right, right, right. You know, yeah. What, what were those, what were those places like? I mean, there's all these places, because, you know, New York is, you know, if anyone who doesn't know, New York can be really tight, like, so right. really compact, meaning that, like, right. you know, um, 
what's that pizza place? I'm just blanking on all of a sudden in the Lower East Side on Avenue A, where they have the uh, oh the, two boots. Thank you, two boots. Yeah, so had a theater there in the basement, right? Oh yeah, that, I think that's a that's, UCB now. I think yeah. Back then, that that thing only sat like ten people. Okay, <laughs> like nine people could fit in there. Those were venues. There used to be a place on Lafayette on the corner. There was a, a club with the down downstairs place called the Fez and everyone used to go down to the Fez. That was like a nice lounge. That was like the lounge vibe, right? Drinks and poetry, hundred people. Then there was the New Yorican. That was just the main spot. Got cast like Saul and Wood and Jessica would all go to Brooklyn Moon, which I just never got. I missed that window, you know? And then I would just, um, you know, because New York was the way it was back then, you just found a venue for that night or for a month, you know, and you would just keep moving around. Uh, there's bar 13, which I don't know if that exists anymore. Man, there's so many, so many years, right? But it's all the same thing. Like all of us before this all came to television, everything, just going to 50, hundred seat clubs, places, just finding a spot, just letting it loose. Yeah. What was the trajectory? Did, did you and your, and your people, did you have any idea of where, what the second, third, fourth, fifth step in this creative journey was? Because like you're saying, MTV had just put it on. Yeah. And I'm yeah. presuming that also um, uh, deaf poetry was just, it hadn't quite happened yet. No. Um, so this is still very much like a, a, a groundswell Right, what, right. Did did you have an ultimate goal at the time, or were we all just figuring it out, just hanging out? Yeah, I think that like you know, I had my ego was really just in control of me at the time. So I always had aspirations that were these global, fucking undeniable aspirations, right? At the same time, uh, I'm a 19, 20 year old kid. I have no sense of the steps in any to achieve any of those things. As far as our cohort, our group, the people that came out of that era. I mean, you're right. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. Everyone thought, oh, this is going to be a thing one day. But nobody knew how to get there, what steps, what, what we would take to convey it to people. No one foresaw certain waves of the movement that led to it being as recognized as it is today. And in fact, even back then, we didn't even know how to survive. We had to figure out how can we earn enough per year just performing on stage our poetry and making our own books because there also weren't a lot of people publishing poets that didn't make it into the Paris Review or other academic journals at the time, right? Right. What were the steps that got you to deaf poetry? And the reason I keep going back to that is because I think that's like an iconic brand, an iconic event, but also your, yeah. um, your, your poem... Uh, give me a chance. I what I what I love about it, and I, it is available on YouTube for the listener. Like what I love about it is because it speaks, especially at that time, about Asian representation, about the yeah. the face of the Asian face on screen um, portrayed in film, in television, mm-hmm. um, and and you are uh, a voice that I know hit me in a lot of feels because my heroes back then were few and far between. And I talk about on this podcast specifically, like even the the impact that Dante Bosco and Hook had on me in terms of giving me, um, you know, the, a vision of, uh, of an Asian who was kind of a badass. They didn't give a fuck <laughs> that, uh, that also just, you know, was willing to, you know, stick his neck out um, and risk it all. Like what, what were those steps that got you there? And also what was the, the impact of that performance? Yeah, um, you know, I think how Dev Poetry came about is uh, 
you know, Russell's brother, uh, Danny had been, you know, he was a visual, he's a visual artist and he'd been going to the Brooklyn moon and to a lot of these New York hotspots and he was seeing it grow and seeing the, the need for these voices in America. Right. And he, you know, talked to Russell and, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, you know, that's a cool thing. And at some point they put together a live show to bring together all of New York's finest, so to speak. And they were going to test it and use that show to pitch. Um, like a week before that show was going to happen, they finally asked me if I wanted to be like on, on the stage, you know, and I'd been doing the poetry thing and the slam and stuff, but this was a, another vibe. I didn't even know the audience or the world or even half of these people really. Um, and so I got up there and I was like, you know what? I'm going to write something for this night. I'm going to write something because at the end of the day, who the fuck am I to this world that I don't understand? I'm going to write something that speaks to like, you need to recognize me and I will show you why. And, um, that's, I wrote that poem that give me a chance poem. You know, I think I wrote it the night before the day of because <laughs> the original title is an open letter to the entertainment industry because I'm literally telling Russell in the front row and all his people from HBO, they're pitching this, he's pitching the show to, I'm like, yo, put me on. Seriously. Right. Back then, that's all I thought is put me on. Did it work? Did it work on any level? Crushed. Crushed. (laughs) Wow. The thing was in context, right? So look back now, the poem's not that whatever. But you look back to like 1999, and I'm in front of that audience, Russell in the front and everything, and I'm just like not giving a fuck. Shit. Shit was wild. Oh, you know? I, yeah, I bet. Can you can you speak a little bit about what you think the current state of Asian representation in media is now? Like I, because I, I was thinking, I think about it a lot now, especially while we're in the middle of the pandemic. Like we mm. were on such a good trajectory for like a minute, and then mm. obviously you know a pandemic hits, and then you know international politics just take a massive shit. But well, like. Well, Right. Yeah. What do you think are the the next big you know touchstones for Asian representation, and and are we that far off from where we were in the nineties? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, that is a very big question. Yeah, it is. I know. <laughs> let me so let me just take like parts of the question real quick that I can answer in this time frame. Right. I think I was saying a short in a short way. I would say this: How far are we from the nineties? In some ways, a lot. In the ways that in the 90s, we knew the hunger for things that didn't exist in that vacuum, in that non-existence. But since the 90s, through technology, through multi-generational global interaction, there's been a change in what it is to really represent and reflect the Asian, the AAPI like diaspora and the reality of us. So have we gotten more uh, big budget movies? Have we gotten more number one singles? Have we gotten more world-renowned fashion trends? Dance crews, everything, yes. Have we, able, have we been able to own ourselves not as a reaction to the prevailing culture? I think that's where we have all the steps we need to take. I think the thing that excites me the most, look, I love a movie like Crazy Rich Asians playing in Nebraska every single day, all day. Love it, right? But us, 
as AAPI folks in the dynamics of all that we can provide shouldn't just be using that as our goal. The thing that's really exciting me is the AAPI folks that are podcasting every single thought they have and nuance to show how unique each voice could be. What excites me is all these unchecked mark APPA. <laughs> that acronym gets me every time. <laughs> I know the acronym's tough. <laughs> like I do the AAPI, right? So yeah, double API. Unchecked people, especially women of color, or out there on the internet taking it to all the misogyny within our own culture, just calling us out. Like these challenges are exciting to me. And it's a thrilling evolution, even as there's like a lot of conflict in the midst of that growth, right? Because we have to let go of wanting a thing that might have been actually long, long game harmful and knowing there's more for us than wanting that thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. When you say long game harmful, do you think in terms of like dumbing down what our, what our double API image is or uh, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Or, or is, is, is it yeah. more of an ownership thing? What do you think? I wouldn't say it so much as a dumbing down. I would say it as a concern of mine is to have 50 to 80% of who we are be only valued as a reaction or as it's validated by the prevailing culture. If that's all we seeking, yeah, that's an issue. If that's all we drive our content towards, that's an issue. Because we have to understand that we are not here to just react, but we are here to be a part of shaping that. And to truly shape it, it can't just be like, well, what would they, what can they accept of me? Right? Yeah. Our creativity has to get beyond that. Right. So right now, uh, you have a book coming out, another book, Well Played. And uh, I was slipping through it. It's, it's beautiful. Also, just uh, I'm a design guy, and I just love the aesthetic of just words on a page. Also, the, um, the physical layout of, of what poetry looks like on a page. It's so there's so much right. white space. It's beautiful. Um, can you tell us what your, where your headspace was in, in uh, writing this new collection and also uh, what this means to you? So it's a huge deal. I think there are three, three main things I would say about this collection is the recognition that it's just a step in the, my life encapsulating all of my life prior. I wanted to make sure, especially to this audience here, that I wrote a lot of poems for those cats that came out of my era. I was born with two tongues, right? Uh, Isang Mahal, right? Eighth Wonder, Denizen Kane, Typical Cats, all those folks that came up in my era, I want to write to them the bow fees of the world, right? Kelly size of the world. I also wanted to write a bunch of poems that I didn't have the courage to write when I was 19. When I was 19, I knew everything about pop culture and I knew that that's how they would give me the money to eat. But I never wrote about what it was like to be Asian in Oklahoma. I never wrote about what it was like to think of my childhood as other to the degree that I have in this book. So I wanted to give myself those poems, right, as a child. And the third thing, I want to express to the world this, we in trouble, y'all fixated on the details. And I wanted my poem to share with y'all some of the concepts to send you on a better path. That's about it. No, that's awesome. I love that. I would love if you're willing to just read a couple of your, um, oh, yeah, your favorite poems uh, for our audience here. I think that would be such a treat, a pleasure, a treat for me, and also a treat I'd for them. To. I'd love to. Thanks, Rich. Um, let's let's do some of my personal faves from the book. You know, I got readings and stuff coming up and everything, but this is exciting. So this 
this poem came up because, you know, I went on a long personal journey, um, stopped accumulating a lot of achievements and started really getting internal with myself, started hearing a lot of whispers around me about being a has-been. And I really took in what that meant, you know, because I wasn't trying to get all the accolades anymore. I was trying to understand myself. And yet that's what was increasing this word in my life. So I flipped it for myself. And this is for everybody that's looking back on the past who needs to recognize you earned a way you've yet to see focused on people judging you that ain't for them to do. Yeah? Here's this. Has been. <sighs> Holy shit. It feels good to be a has been. Because you know me. Has been an addict to writing until I'd forgotten my face. Rage until I lost my voice. Regret until I started slow deathing the future. I has been a son blaming his parents for America. A friend getting got cause never taught boundaries with white people. A partner chasing love to run from everything I don't like about myself. I has been forcing the issue instead of listening to my heart. I has been unaware of anxiety until I comed at the party. I has been insecure to the point of staying on my knees for belonging. I has been the poet who helped white poets feel diverse. Has been the poet who gave passes to white men's verse. Has been the poet hiding worthless at the expense of others through brat expressions of power. I has been the poet who almost kept working with death. Has been the poet who almost got stuck in the beats bedroom has been the poet who almost didn't see the plot twist in the legends story i accept whatever fate befalls me because i has been too hung up on getting mine to victimhood as denial tool to fuck boy in a love ploy who has been so depressed shutting it out so depressed letting it be definitive so depressed wondering why my life didn't turn out the way early accolades suggested it would based on all the things I read by colorless poets in the quiet room. Didn't see that the trophies, the trinkets, and the treats of triumph weren't the only things I has been. Stuck in diminishing returns of celebrated angst was once the dragon sleepwalking through caverns claiming golden. Waking in truth to release this regret, beginning to let go of all that deludes in the standing O, standing in my own, growing out of all the things I've been that would never fulfill this destiny. Amazing. That's so Thank good. You. So good. Thanks, man. That um, It's a healing thing. One of the things I learned in this road you can do poems to impress people or you can do poems to heal yourself. The latter will get you further. Agree. So, 100%. So this is a poem I wrote a year or two ago, feeling the vibes on earth and where they were headed. And uh, it's a thing we got to really consider because I think even to this day, we longing for $7 lattes and not seeing what's ahead for us. So this poem is called Can't Run Far Enough. It's all happening, and I think that I can escape it, as if the knife 
can stop the hurricane, as if meditation alone prevents famine, as if the rice war is a logical progression of thought and then poof, all gone, no loose ends, as if, fat chance, no luck roulette on this entitlement of outcome. I've got coping through addiction, waiting for saviors to set me free. I got superhero sequels on the brain. I got off the pedestal and saw what muck we've been festering. Oh, how we cheer for ourselves to miss the point eloquently, dining out on luxuries till the meteor arrives, wishing on a revolutionary poster that can be gift-wrapped and easy on the conscience, delving into a silo to be comforted while the core quakes, dimming the lights so we don't have to see around corners, denying the measles metaphor and every blinding privilege, and I'm sitting in my complaints box, begging to be read by the powers that be as if I could spark anything more than a head nod we'd be powerless in our concession to masters that knew we'd never read the terms of service and I'm calling myself out to slow humanities devolve in shuttered circles and I'm doing just enough to be ahead of whack place like that will keep the wolf from bearing down on my neck as if I can make the solution what's agreeable to my stomach. The gut receives what the tongue is tricked by. Want to share the next movement but only know what's wrong with the rote choreo we think will win the championship. It's still escapism if you can't let in the world as it is to be who you are. Most wake choosing to walk backwards to stay along familiar lines and all these go bags spell out where the living are unwilling to work. There ain't no Costa Rica for any of us to go to. Can't think your way out of the dragon's lair, especially when the smell of fear draws the fire of your reckoning. Amazing. So good. So good, dude. I, I got chills. I got chills in my bones. Uh, that, this has been such an, yeah, this has been such an absolute pleasure. I, I'm beyond honored. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you for the work you're doing. And thank for you for letting me share my voice on your podcast, man. And you just keep expressing, man, sharing that nuance of who you are. It's so vital to this. And the idea that we are part of the story of America means that we have to share the fullness of our story. You're absolutely right. I appreciate those words. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Where can they find the book? I know it's on Amazon, uh, but yeah, like anything else out there, please. Where can our listeners uh, find yeah, more know, of you? You know, you just put up my name on there, spell it out, and they can find me on every social media handle under those letters. Um, and then you can just find me on them internet's computers, y'all. That's what's up. Bosia, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Rich. You take it easy, man. Thank y'all for listening. Take care. Peace. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get podcast content. On social media, you can find us at at First Gen Burden, and you can find me at Rich underscore TU on various social media. If possible, please support your frontline healthcare workers by donating to First Responders First at help.firstrespondersfirst.co. Check this feed for more episodes. I hope you stay safe and stay healthy.